The Capital Weekly Podcast is a production of Open California and is sponsored by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Welcome to a special episode of the Capital Weekly Podcast. Today's episode was recorded live at a panel discussion hosted by Capital Weekly on the topic of the future of work after the pandemic. Hello, my name is Tim Foster. I'm with Open California. We're the publisher of Capital Weekly, which is hosting this event on the future of work. Today's topic is after the pandemic, what happens when COVID-19 is a memory? Uh, What's left of the business community? We are hosting this as part of a quarterly series. Uh, We normally have these live events, but uh, right now we're doing all of these on Zoom. And we have three more on this topic scheduled uh, each Thursday for the next three Thursdays. Uh, We will be looking next week at the aftermath of Prop 22, what that's gonna mean for California. Uh, The March 4th presentation will look at the big picture, sort of everything we haven't talked about today and that we won't talk about uh, next week. And then finally on March 11th, we will have our keynote for this series. Uh, and the keynoter for that will be Assemblywoman Lorena Gonzalez. Lorena Gonzalez, of course, wrote AB5 and has been sort of the go-to person on labor issues, a lot of work issues in the legislature. Uh, she is probably the single person to watch for uh, work-related legislation coming out of Sacramento. So I hope you will join us for those. Today's uh, Discussion is brought to you by our sponsors. We are a 501c3 nonprofit. We could not do these without our sponsors. And chief among them is our presenting sponsor, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Tassin has been with us since the moment we started and they have supported everything we've done. And then we have a series of sponsors who have supported our discussion groups and our events. Those include very familiar names to anyone who follows Sacramento politics, KP Public Affairs, Perry Communications, the Western States Petroleum Association, Capital Advocacy, California Building Industry Association, the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California, and the California Professional Firefighters. And I thank them very much for their support. We just could not do these events without their support. I should note that we had initially planned to have Senator Skinner join us today. Unfortunately, her schedule has changed. She is in stuck at a committee right now. She may join us uh, midstream if that if her schedule allows. We just don't know, but we're going to go ahead without her. And with that, I'm going to turn this over to our moderator for today's panel, Sonia Sorich from the Sacramento Business Journal. Sonia will probably be a familiar voice to most of our viewers and listeners. Uh, She is often a guest on Capital Public Radio on business issues. She's been following the pandemic and what it has done to Sacramento's business community very closely. So I think she was a perfect person to host this discussion. Thanks so much. And with that, I'm going to hand it over to Sonia. Thank you. Thanks, Tim. Um, As Tim noted, my name is Sonia Sorich. I am the digital editor at the Sacramento Business Journal. I'm looking forward to participating in today's event. We're going to start with some uh, general issues, but I encourage our audience members to uh, brainstorm some creative questions to ask uh, as the discussion moves forward. Today, we are joined by Jot Condi of the California Restaurant Association, Julie Baker of Californians for the Arts, Micah Weinberg of California Forward, and uh, we may or may not be joined by Senator Nancy Skinner at some point. Uh, So again, looking forward to an exciting discussion today. Um, Jot, I'd like to start with you uh, because in my experience, it's always a good idea to start with food uh, when in doubt. Let's talk about restaurants a little bit. Over this past weekend, I had my first experience uh, at a restaurant with having virtually no contact with a wait staff. I placed my order through my cell phone, I paid through my cell phone, and only encountered an employee uh, when my food was brought to my table. At the same time, in interviewing local restaurant owners for my job at the Sacramento Business Journal, I've had frequent conversations about challenges in finding workers and uh, a perceived shortage of restaurant employees. If you don't mind, why don't you start off by telling us a little bit about what you think the pandemic might ultimately mean for the local uh, and statewide restaurant workforce? 
Yeah, well, I, I think your experience at, um, at, a, at a Sacramento restaurant using sort of probably using a QR code of some kind with your phone is likely to be, you know, um, a trend, you know, that of course we don't know what the industry is totally going to look like, you know, when we come out of this and the dust settles, but if you sort of squint, you can see some, some, um, some trends emerging. Um, and certainly one of them will be um, uh, a continued adoption of technologies. Um, I, you know, I think a lot of restaurants, but pre-pandemic were um, more and more uh, getting used to using technology because the restaurant industry for the most part, historically has been a very low tech industry. It's all about human contact. It's about fire and the knives in the kitchen and the food. And, um, but you've started to see um, you know, more and more restaurants trying to figure out how to you know, adjust a business model that is very low profit margin, high labor costs. Um, and so, you know, I, the, the struggle has always been, will consumers sort of accept that kind of service model, you know, where there's no contact with a server. We're all used to a certain type of experience when you're going and dining out. Um, and that's likely to be a legacy of the, um, of the pandemic. You'll see probably um, less servers, more technology, um, and, and consumers seem to be um, accepting it. Um, I think to your point about, um, you know, the, the workforce, uh, as I'm talking to restaurateurs throughout the state, throughout the country, now, um, this is going to be the next challenge for them. That is how to find the workers. Um, you know, uh, restaurants are now starting to reach out to their workforce, envisioning opening up at some point soon in some capacity indoors, and they're just, you know, reconnecting. And, um, you know, about 50% of the workforce that they had are basically either moved on or um, can't, don't feel safe to come back to work unless they're vaccinated. In many cases, because they've had to leave their apartment or their, their, their residence and move back in with parents where there may be someone who's at risk. So um, yes, um, the, the, the pandemic has served as an accelerant in you know, technology in our industry. You're gonna see the types of restaurants that emerge from this change drastically. Now, the, the days of the 5,000 square foot full service restaurant will be a thing of the past. Um, and you'll see, you know, the menu mix in many different um, restaurants uh, be more simplified. Um, and then ultimately the consumers will, will dictate where and how the restaurants reopen. Um, but we can get into this later because uh, I think uh, geography and different parts of California and sort of urban versus rural um, you're going to see a big difference in sort of how how restaurants succeed in in you know San Francisco versus let's say Sacramento. A quick follow-up point on that. I know a big part of the daily work life are um, business lunches and uh, standard trips out to lunch. My office in normal times is on Capitol Mall in downtown Sacramento, and during the pandemic our list of lunch options has diminished uh, fairly significantly because of permanent closures. What is your outlook? I know initially the numbers have sort of fluctuated, but in terms of the, the survival rate of restaurants, particularly in, in hubs that were previously dominated by office workers, uh, what is your current outlook uh, for, for the survival rate of these restaurants? Well, from the very beginning, I mean, we we spent a lot of time talking to sort of the financial analysts and private equity investors and then business owners. And, you know, it's our expectation that when the dust settles and we all climb out of our bunker to survey the landscape, um, you know, there's likely to be about 30 percent less restaurants in California. And, and the vast majority of the sort of those that have fallen will be independent restaurants. Um, you know, in, in a lot of the um, dense urban areas, uh, to your point, you know, and, and as it relates to you know, consumer behaviors and purchasing patterns, you know, you have you know, um, Salesforce just announced uh, a week ago that um, a large uh, segment of their workforce um, will not be coming back into San Francisco to work in the office. So you have an ecosystem of restaurants that are kind of built around office parks, you know, financial districts in high density sort of urban centers. San Francisco would be exhibit A, where, you know, the, the um, coffee before work crowd, the 
lunch meeting crowd, the drinks after work crowd, um, that, that they're going to thin out. Um, and so you know, the restaurants that built a business model on that, on that segment are going to uh, either close down have to change their business model or figure out a different path. Um, but yeah, you're going to see, you know, um, a lot of, a lot of lunch places, coffee shops are, are, have taken it on the chin as well. Um, because they count on those, those people coming into San Francisco, Sacramento, LA from the suburbs to get the cup of coffee before they go up, maybe buy a drink with a friend after work before they go home. Um, that, that's going to substantially change the landscape um, in areas. And that's where I think these urban centers that count on uh, uh, commuters uh, into, into the city for work, um, you, know, it, you know, certainly uh, I think Billy will sort of uh, confirm this for us, the arts, you know, and cities that are rich in the arts and performance and, you know, are reason for people to travel from outside the state, outside the country to come into these cities. Um, you know, there's, there's an ecosystem in the restaurant space that's built around perform the performing arts. Um, that's going to substantially change because we just don't know when the travelers are going to come back. Sure, thank sure. you. Julie, that seems like a, a logical segue to you. First of all, do you have any uh, immediate follow-up to, to the points that Jot just brought up? Absolutely. I mean, we, we don't even have a roadmap to when we're going to reopen performing arts centers. Sure. Um, they're not on the blueprint for um, a safer, you know, reopening of the governors. So uh, and I love talking post-pandemic, but <laughs> right. we're so deep in it. But, you know, I think to, to Jot's point, absolutely. You know, the, the Americans for the Arts is for every, you know, dollars, another $31 back into your community, whether that's restaurant, hotels, and retail. So uh, I think it's, it's, it, it, it massive impact, but also to Jot's point in terms of who are his workers, some of his workers are artists. Um, you know, they're musicians, actors who are the original gig, uh, you know, employees who hold down several jobs um, now are, you know, have really no work at all happening. So it's, it's, it's a pretty scary uh, picture right now for the arts, but we'll certainly hope that it will be like the roaring 20s again, you know, the roaring 2020s, and we'll all get back and we'll all gather again and drink and be merry at restaurants and performing arts centers and the like. I'd like you to elaborate on, on that last point a little bit. Uh, psychologically, do you think that arts audiences are ready to return to venues such as theaters? No, I mean, the studies say no, um, they're not. I mean, honestly, you know, in the very beginning of the pandemic, almost a year ago now, you know, the very first uh, association to the arts was arts equals bad, arts and gathering bad, shut it down, don't make it happen. And so effectively, we've been shut for the entire year. We don't have takeout for the arts. It's just, you know, and so um, I think that what we're learning now, the German studies, the other studies with proper ventilation systems, with uh, proper mask wearing, and hopefully with widespread vaccines, we can reopen uh, the arts safely and welcome our patrons back. For many in the performing arts in particular, audiences tend to skew a little bit older, not in terms of like live independent venues that might be a little bit younger, but when you're talking about theaters, they're skewing older. So that audience, of course, um, uh, is, is, you know, we're deeply concerned before the vaccine. We do know that they're first to get the vaccine. So we're thinking we should partner with AARP and uh, <laughs> do a whole program just of arts for people who are vaccinated um, and we can all get together. I know a lot of arts organizations have adapted by offering various digital um, elements to sort of keep their presence at the forefront of people's minds during all of this. Um, do you think that that's been effective and do you see any of those elements staying around uh, once things return to some level of normal? I think the advantage to that is that you expand your audience, right? It goes beyond who can physically um, show up in your theater. The disadvantage to that is that we 
cannot figure out a way to monetize that appropriately. So for nonprofits, it's a nice engagement strategy with your donors and maybe your donors who are already paying to be a, a member uh, to your organization. But, what, but we're so trained in getting free content online that it's a, it's a really difficult transition for us to figure out how to monetize that. The other thing that I think happens often to the arts, and I'm so grateful that you invited us into this conversation because you know part of the time artists are not even seen as a workforce. So we're grateful that you recognize how important that arts are in terms of a workforce. And you know, I think that um, artists often offer a lot of free content that we cannot live without. I mean, I think we're all looking to it right now. If the thing that the arts, that this pandemic has illustrated, I think hopefully for people is that they desperately need the arts and that they are just can't wait to have that opportunity to get back to it. Um, but I think you'll see a trend towards um, organizations learning how to do that better. Um, it's not a skill set that many of them had going into the pandemic. If you had a, uh, a preparator in a museum to hang an art show, that was not someone who then knew how to do a virtual art show. Totally different skill set. So we're also seeing our workforce in the arts having to shift and you're bringing in new types of people. And um, I think we're going to need to see a lot of technical training for that as well. Sure. Thank you. I'd like to move on to uh, Micah now. Um, Micah, I know a critical part of talking about the post-pandemic workforce uh, involves the impact of working from home. Uh, at the Business Journal, we've written a lot of stories talking about uh, people both moving out of California because they can do their job from anywhere, but also people moving within California yeah. to places like Sacramento and the Sacramento region as a whole. Uh, if you wouldn't mind, I kind of start off with your general assessment of, of where that all stands, especially amid talk of the uh, so-called California exodus. Yeah, well, let me let me quickly talk about something that is maybe happening. Yes, please. Exodus, something that is definitely happening, which is the acceleration of some of these trends that were already happening in the economy and something that's a huge problem regardless of what is happening. Great. Uh, a lot of data recently um, uh, it has suggested that, um, and this has actually just been the case for decades, it is much more common for businesses to move around within California than it is for them to exit California. Um, and uh, at the California Forward, we're a statewide movement to make the economy and government work for everyone. We work with members of what we call our California Stewardship Network. Um, groups all over the state, including, for example, the Inland Empire Economic Partnership. And so when we had somebody from the Bay Area come and say, everybody's leaving, uh, the guy from the Inland Empire put his hands up and he's like, yeah, they're coming here. Right. And so you see like these massive differences, rents plummeting in San Francisco, skyrocketing in Bakersfield. Right. So there is a lot of movement. But a lot of it is like movement from uh, San Francisco. People are relocating to where I live in Oakland substantially more than they're relocating to, um, you know, Miami or, uh, you know, or, or Austin. Uh, God help them. Uh, but uh, so that's, I don't know, I, we, but I'm not saying it isn't happening. I'm saying we just don't really know yet. It's, you know, we'll have to see how this sorts out. But something that is definitely happening is things that were already happening. So Jot mentioned this, right? There was already a move towards using more technology to a certain extent within the restaurant industry. And the pandemic has accelerated that move. And it is likely to persist even after the pandemic. We see that in terms of work from home as well. We do expect in terms of economic analysis uh, that the um, automation trends, the work from home trends, the remote work trends that were already happening are going to persist. And in fact, McKinsey put out a report just today uh, suggesting that 25% more uh, people will have to switch jobs sooner than they thought in their last report on this that said a ton of people needed to switch jobs. Okay, so all that stuff really is happening. There's gonna be a lot more work from home. There's gonna be a lot more remote work. So let me just conclude with, what's our problem? Our problem in California is that we can't do anything, right? So, uh, you know, if these transitions need to happen for individuals, for industries, for communities, that means we'll need new infrastructure. That means we'll need new kinds of buildings. That means that we will need to 
do all sorts of things to adapt to the future, let alone climate adaptation, right? And let me just give one example. So the BART, right? Boy, would it be great if the BART had a second tube already. But the current plan that was just released, and I love that there's gonna be a second tube, says that in the best case scenario, with no delays, we get a second BART tube in 2040, right? That's freaking insane. The fact that we have just accepted our state's impotence in actually doing things and building things and running things and creating public transit and creating homes, that is terrible. So whether or not the California exodus is happening, we need to focus on having a regulatory environment that actually works for empowering people to make these transitions and travel around the state in different ways than they have been up until this point. And I know, uh, Micah, the, the shift toward work from home has also highlighted a variety of uh, disparities in terms of things like access to technology, um, as well as uh, the impact, the various gender disparities, such as uh, the extent to which women have been affected by changes uh, during the pandemic. Is your group any, doing anything to, to address those issues? And uh, what is your long-term outlook on that? Yeah, I mean, so we're especially focused on racial equity. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, the, uh, the gender issues are extraordinarily important as well. Um, but when you look at the impact of this pandemic, um, you see that it has fallen substantially more heavily uh, on our Black population, our Latinx population in the state in so many different ways. The you know, actual COVID itself but also the people who have to make those economic transitions are you know, coming disproportionately from those populations. And so the things like our ridiculous, so people are like, oh, regulations are great for people. And if we deregulate, it's bad for people. But if our regulations are making it so that these you know, communities of color cannot navigate these economic transitions, then that's not a good set of regulations that we have in the state. If these, you know, uh, uh, these regulations that we have are not allowing us to build homes in other areas, right? Because people are now working from home, that's not a pro-human set of regulations to have. Um, so it's, uh, it's just something we need to be very careful about uh, if we actually want to empower people in these transitions. Hey, Senator Skinner. Hello, how are you? Good. Hey, Great. Senator Skinner, thank you so much for joining us. I, I'm Good. glad that you made it. How are you doing? Doing well. We just finished a budget hearing. Good stuff. Awesome. Good. Good. Well, if you're ready, um, we can jump in and, and start chatting with you. Uh, now, do you need a minute to catch your breath or anything? No, no I'm ready. <laughs> Okay, perfect. Um, well, great. So yeah, we've, we've sort of addressed some uh, issues expected to impact the workforce after the pandemic. I guess if you could kind of start by talking about things from a legislative perspective, I know that there is a new law um, that uh, involves reporting COVID-19 outbreaks in businesses. Um, do you see additional legislation pertaining to post-pandemic workforces uh, and workplaces in particular? Um, not necessarily. I mean, I think sure. the thing that we are really going to be focused on is how to ensure that the folks that lost their jobs during this pandemic get work again. And as we know, there's some sectors that are, I don't mean whole sectors that won't come back, but segments of sectors that are just not going to come back the same way. And when we look at who was really hit, women by far, much more than men and low income women. So women, uh, low wage workers and women of color, exceedingly, exceedingly impacted. And the interesting thing is that um, the higher wage women were left the workforce, not so much because their job was cut, but because of the lack of childcare or the schools being closed. And unfortunately, we may have a situation where a lot of family daycare centers and many of us relied on family daycare, they may not have the wherewithal to open again. 
So there's a lot we're going to have to do to make sure that this hit that people have projected is a 20-year hit on women financially, women of every income, that we uh, that we make the uh, right type of policy calls to ameliorate that because that is not right. Given the advances that women have made economically and within workplaces to have this pandemic impact women to that degree, we just need to really focus on it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh I also know that there are some legislative efforts underway um, to retain uh, certain measures that were implemented during the pandemic pertaining to the food and beverage industry in particular. Uh, I believe you uh, introduced a bill uh, pertaining to craft distilleries in particular. Tell me a little bit about some of those efforts. Well, you know, we look at the pandemic and our restaurant businesses, our bars, various others, tasting rooms, whether it's a distillery or a winery had to close. And as a result, we made some adjustments. Some were done just regulatorily, like our ABC, just allowed, for example, for um, restaurants and bars to sell to-go cocktails. Prior to the pandemic, you couldn't sell a to-go cocktail. And it allowed for our um, distillers to be able to send uh, bottles directly. And so, you know, we've not seen uh, terrible repercussions of, you know, the sort of, you know, why do we have certain regulations around alcohol consumption, for example, because we do not want to increase drunk driving, we don't want to increase, and we've not seen the type of, uh, you know, what you might call unintended bad consequences of those changes, many of which were done regulatorily. So, you know, what was good for the pandemic? Maybe it's a good thing to continue. And I think we need to be sensitive to that sector of business to see whether those are things they want to continue. And for our craft distillers, they absolutely want to because their volumes are such that the normal distribution branch of, for alcohol doesn't always, won't always carry them. They're just not big enough. And so for their product to get out to you, Sometimes that direct sale in the way that you can become a winery club member is really important and needed for the craft distillers. Jot, if uh, you don't mind, I'd like you to follow up on that a little bit. Is um, Are those sort of efforts encouraging to you in terms of uh, efforts to keep certain regulatory changes uh, that were implemented as a form of relief after the pandemic? Yeah, and I think to Senator Skinner's point, um, you know, I don't think any of us would have envisioned, you know, uh, a normal sort of uh, in the course of a normal sort of restaurant uh, operation pre pre pandemic that they would be selling cocktails to go. I mean, because there were a lot of interests that said this is going to be chaos. We can't do this, and all of a sudden, it's not so bad after all. And I, and I think when uh, when the pandemic first hit, and I was talking to then the um, ABC director, Jacob Applesmith, they reached out to us and said, how can we help? And that was one of the areas that if you're not, you know, um, everyone knows that the alcohol, um, you know, piece of a, of a, of a bar or a distillery or a restaurant is, is important in terms of that revenue. Um, and when that dries up because there's no in-person dining, um, that's, you know, creates a, a huge challenge for some of these small independent restaurants. So, yeah, I think our, um, similar to what Senator Skinner has said, um, the, the repercussions, there haven't been these unintended consequences that we've all sort of envisioned you know, prior to the pandemic. We were all looking for monsters under the bed saying, oh, this is going to be really bad. Well, it's, it hasn't been so bad. Um, and I think ultimately restaurants and, and bars and distilleries would love to have the customers come back, yes. enjoy you know, a cocktail, maybe a second one, as long as they're taking Uber or Lyft. Um, you know, because that creates more of an opportunity for a restaurant to keep, keep a customer there, maybe drive the sales up. Um, but, you know, I, we've asked our members, would, would it be, is that a good thing if you make this permanent? And they all said, absolutely. I mean, certainly we'd love them to come back when they can, but we will sell them a, a cocktail, whether we have to deliver it or we'll welcome them into our dining room. But every, in, in, an, in an industry where, you know, the the weight of a nickel is like a manhole cover. Every penny counts. Um, and so cocktails to go um, are a huge help. To well, to follow up on Jot's uh, comment, um, to go was always a feature of many, many restaurants. 
And yet, and you know, most of us, when we dine out, not all, but many, we enjoy a cocktail. So if we order that same restaurant's food, even after a pandemic, and we ordered that food because we enjoyed that food, then we, you know, it just makes sense that we also enjoyed their particular cocktail. Sure, I can make a Manhattan at home, but you know, the my favorite restaurants, they put a little spin on that Manhattan and I don't have all those ingredients at home. And so that I know that I can enjoy that particular meal, the times when I want to have it at home with the same cocktail I would have otherwise had, it just makes sense. And, but certainly we want people to get back into the restaurants too, when it's safe. I mean, I have a lot of family members. Uh, my daughter and daughter-in-law have been out of work because they both are uh, restaurant. Uh, one of them is uh, her, she's the manager usually of restaurants. My daughter is the chef. And, you know, one of the things that I personally always enjoyed most and miss most from this pandemic is being able to just sit in my favorite neighborhood restaurant and enjoy that good food and have a drink. So those are really important things to uh, we want to see back after the pandemic. As someone who loves Manhattans and is hopeless at making them himself, I strongly endorse that comment. <laughs> I love the fact that the future of work post-pandemic involves alcohol. Um, <laughs> to go. Road, road beverages. Not um, for driving. <laughs> yeah, but I, I think Sonia, what I was saying before in terms of the arts, the challenge for the arts is that we don't have a to-go cup for the arts. And so, you know, that's that's where we've been struggling and the on online delivery kind of of what our typical, what makes the arts so significant for people is the concept of being together sure. in a live shared experience. And so it's that's a challenge for our sector in the transition. And we look forward to, of course, being post COVID. I love that, that we're thinking there. Um, and when we can have those opportunities to gather again, but it will look different. And I think we're gonna have to all adjust towards that as well. Well, and you know, I mentioned missing a restaurant. The, the two main things I miss, going out to hear music or seeing you know, the, li the live arts yeah. and that eating out. And I would note that around our arts, look, most of our restaurants, some chose just not to, um, to go into a to-go mode. And some, it was just the, you know, the overhead margins in restaurants are so slim that, you know, some just closed, but they were not and when I say, I don't mean it forced to, yes, the economic situation put some of them in the situation they were forced to. But when we compare it to the arts, they had no choice. Those venues have not been open since day one. And, and of course, arts venues are, uh, the restaurants are very dependent too on the arts venue. So it, it also affected the restaurants. So I was very, very pleased that, um, and we just, heard it today and uh, it, we didn't vote, but we'll vote Monday, hopefully, knock on wood. Uh, our expanded program for small business relief includes a special pot for the quote unquote cultural meaning, museums, our arts venues, our music, our theater stages, that kind of thing. And it doesn't have the same revenue cap because if you, you know, you could have, you could have made 5 million in the year that you were open and made literally 50,000 this year because you were fully closed. And so why we would cap you and not allow you to get access to our small grants. So we, we fixed that. And I was a very, very strong advocate of that because of my keen awareness of how much our, our cultural and arts venues had to literally close completely. Yeah. Thank you. And well, and so as the executive director of California Arts Advocates, I can say we're very pleased with that call out of $50 million for cultural institutions. And uh, it is absolutely desperately needed for the sector. And a lift recognize. on their revenue cap and a on the in their cap. award. Yeah, no, I saw it. I, I have the bill language right here on my phone, uh, hitting refresh 930 last night. So thank you, Senator Skinner. Very, very good news for the sector. And we'll be out there supporting that for sure. Julie, uh, backing up a little bit, what's been your assessment um, up until now of the financial relief that's been available to arts organizations? Well, it really came down to the federal relief first. Right. You know, what in our surveys that we've seen is that um, arts organizations and arts workers are hanging on. We call it just, you know, it's... Um, 
it's life support, um, really, um, from PPP loans. Number one, there was $1.8 billion in PPP loans to arts and culture nonprofits across the United States. So that was extremely important and significant. CARES Act funding in the state went directly into cities, municipalities. So some did better than others. Some were able to fight for some of that funding for their arts organizations. And then pandemic unemployment assistance. I just want to point out how critical that is for the arts because the arts employees are, um, they're not employees, three and a half times more likely to be self-employed. And so these systems that support artists, um, these sort of the original, as I said, gig workers, we have great systems like in France, for example, example, where they actually have an intermittent um, uh, unemployment system for arts workers so that when you're not getting a gig, and you're in between, you don't have to go necessarily work at a restaurant, but instead you can create your work and you're on an unemployment system. Those are the sorts of things that I think eventually we are gonna need to address. How do we take care of our self-employed people um, with systems when there are catastrophes like this? Do you worry about the pandemic uh, deterring people from entering the arts or young people from pursuing careers in the arts uh, as a result of some of these issues that have been brought to life due to the pandemic? Actually, we see that we just completed an impact survey and we've seen that, I think, I don't have the number in front of me, but it was a significant amount already saying we're exiting the creative industries and we're looking for other aspects of work. So that is a very deep concern of whether or not, if people don't see them see a future for themselves, which I think at the top of the hour, Cindy, I mentioned that we're not even in the blueprint for reopening right. live events and performing arts. So they don't even see a future for themselves yet. That's a really disheartening and difficult place for uh, someone who's who really gives their life to an art form to right. to understand where can I go with this so I think um, yeah, it's, it's a de- definite concern for our sector. I want to uh, bounce back to Jot quickly uh, back on the topic of financial relief. Uh, what's been your sense in the conversations that you've had with restaurant owners of the impact of the second PPP? Well, it's just starting to have an impact now. I mean, obviously, uh, it is a lifeline um, because when in-person dining has been, for the most part, shut down for you know ten months, um, it dries up the the revenue stream. And I think you know um, there when when outdoor dining before it got really cold and people would drive, let's say, down J Street in Sacramento, and they would people would comment to me and said, "Wow, the restaurants must be doing great. There's this vibrant." you know, atmosphere as I drive down J Street and see all these tables, it, it just feels like a festival. And, you know, I said, it, it, for those restaurants, those five tables on the sidewalk, there's 35 empty tables inside. So they're not bringing the revenue. The PPP um, funds have been a lifeline for restaurants. And I think it's important to note that mo- most of those, those funds are going to pay for the, uh, pay the worker. Um, to keep them, um, you know, uh, gainfully employed and being able to pay their bills. Um, so it's it's been critical. And, you know, I think in our industry, I think the great untold story, not just, I mean, everyone feels for their local restaurants and it's sad to see what these um, restaurant owners are going through, but the workforce are suffer- suffering mightily. I mean, we were the largest private, one of the largest private sector employers in the state of California before the pandemic, 1.4 million workers. It's safe to say that about 800 plus thousand of them are still out of work. And I think to Julie's point earlier um, and Senator Skinner's point about sort of the, the restaurant industry has is, is has a symbiotic relationship with the arts. There's ecosystems of restaurants that are around, you know, performing arts centers. Um, Julie, you're right, the, the, uh, the workforce, the servers, um, who, who pre-pandemic, there was 235,000 servers in the state of California. I mean, if you look at our workforce broken down by category, um, you know, the 300,000 chefs that existed or cooks and chefs that existed before the pandemic, you know, I would say probably 60 to 70% of them are working in probably a reduced capacity, but these are mostly full-time workers um, that usually have uh, dependents. And then you look at the servers, the 235,000 servers pre-pandemic, most of them are not working now. And yes, Julie, show me a server in Los Angeles and I'll show you an aspiring actor or musician. I mean, most of them are in the arts because 
they're 71% of them are working part-time so they can pursue school, their passion. Um, and what's been sad to see is that the, the pain that a lot of these servers are going through, which where they're, they're working for tips, they're earning sort of full-time income working part-time so they could go to school. We're seeing a lot of them having to drop out of school because they can't afford to, to pay tuition, moving back home. And I suspect a lot of them dropping out of performing arts because they just don't see a future in them. Micah, do you have any other uh, insights on that note in terms of, of summer, some of these broader industries that are being impacted this significantly? Yeah, I mean, uh, hospitality generally, obviously. Yeah. Um, and uh, so one of the one of the challenges becomes that you have, you know, businesses that are struggling and then you have workers that are struggling and too often those are kind of set up as, you know, opposed to each other and we can't do anything good for the businesses if we're going to do, you know, good things for the workers. And so one of the things that I was really excited about um, is uh, we've been bringing people together around these equitable economic recovery processes across the state. And Ultimately, when you build these relationships, good things happen, you know, the challenge in, in you know, in Sacramento is, that you, you know, you'll get up and I'm testifying against this, you're testifying for it, we kind of end up feeling like enemies, but when everybody obviously wants to bring back a, you know, a vibrant and equitable economy. And so some of the relationships that we created uh, at one of these tables led to uh, employers in the hospitality industry uh, offering a first right of return for their uh, existing employees. And this isn't something that the state imposed on them. This is uh, something that came out of a set of relationships and conversations that happened. Uh, mm -hmm. Because, you know, I found, especially small businesses, I mean, their workers really are their families um, in, in so many ways. Um, and so figuring out how to build these relationships for the time being over Zoom, uh, you know, to get you know, don't 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 wait for only state policy to do this. Let's see how much more we can also do through um, uh, private practices and private relationships. So I, I wonder if we've talked much about this um, move to uh, working at home. And we touched on it briefly before you joined us, but it seems okay. like you have a lot more to add. So jump well, in. I want to bring it up because yes. you know, again, these intersections of things where. Now, the, the restaurant and arts connection is more to do with, say, the art centers of areas and tourism. And of course, we don't know how long it's going to take for tourism to come back because, you know, while people may get to the point where they're, they feel much more comfortable, for example, going and seeing their family and friends, they may still for a long time not feel comfortable staying in a hotel or going to uh, another city or that kind of thing. So that may take a while, which of course affects, um, you know, different sectors that have been hit harder. But then if we look at our, I'll call it our downtowns, our job centers, they have all of this business or commerce that is really there because it supports that, you know, those offices that are filled with people. And so if we're in a situation where those offices never get filled up with people again, it's going to affect all of that activity. And it's a, a legion of activity, right? I mean, it's, it's the lunch type places, it's coffee shops, it's dry cleaners, it's florists, it's you name it, it's so many things. And well, I, you know, certainly I think we're going to have more work from home than we had pre-pandemic. I hope we're not, I hope that we see a lot more return to the office. And the reason I say it is because, you know, for many of us, we like the distinction between office and home. We like to have home separated, right? And then for others of us, we don't have the space in our homes for that work. And there, you know, there's many, many reasons besides the economic ones, for us to be supportive of bringing back some degree of people returning to going to work. Yeah, I really hope that we do that. Um, but, you know, it is going to be a trend to a certain extent going forward. So there'll be a, different at the, a difference at the margins. Right. That's why Senator Skinner's work as a champion of housing is so yeah. important. 
right? Yes. Because the, you know, when I talk to uh, our California Stewardship Network members, like the Tahoe Prospect Center and the Sierra Business Council, there are a lot of folks that have moved up to the Sierras that are going to stay there, right? Yeah. A few, maybe not everybody, but there was zero excess housing there, like literally none. And so if even a few thousand more people are permanently in that region than before, it has a massive outsized impact on housing prices there. When we keep this basic human necessity scarce, mm-hmm. hurts lower income people. Right. Yeah, we've, so this yeah. change has raised prices, housing prices in places that were not priced out and then created a circumstance where people, once they started working for home, from home and thinking of it as something they could continue to do motivated some of them to leave and move even out of state because our housing is just, I'll say it, it's too damn expensive. And why is it so expensive? And this is something that I think, you know, all of our housing advocates need to embrace. That shortage, the lack of supply has driven up the prices. So yes, we need affordable housing. But we do not only, we'll never get affordable housing unless we have more housing overall. We must have more housing overall. We absolutely have to. Because even people who, you know, five years ago, 10 years ago, weren't priced out are now priced out. And even our best programs for subsidized affordable doesn't cover that category of people, the people who are earning 80,000, 100,000, 150,000 right? They earn that and they can't afford to live here because we've not built housing. So anything we do in relationship to thinking about getting the economy back and getting people back to work has got to include green lighting housing. I wonder about the, um, I agree with all of that. And I, you know, I have meetings when you have these virtual meetings with people and you see their, their young children on their laps running around and we're trying to all homeschool, take care of your kids, work from home, do all of this sort of stuff. So I like the concept of separating again, once the schools are open and we can mm-hmm. get back to work in that way. But I also wonder about the convention businesses, because I think one of the things that we've also learned is that um, we can do effective meetings from a, from a computer. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, especially for small businesses, when you're doing professional development and conventions and, con- you know, that sort of tourism that drives that aspect of midweek tourism as well, that drives restaurants, that drives then even midweek live events and everything else. Will that be as necessary and the expenditure that a business has to make to send your employees to these conventions? I, I wonder about the, the aspect of that. That's and the not carbon and the carbon footprint of it. Yeah. Well, and that's the other piece of that. I think obviously the sky looks a lot clearer today because we're all not driving as much. And I think that is something we need to consider. So yeah, and I, I think you know, and that's those are one of the, the metrics that we're constantly looking at trying to figure out what does the what does the workforce look like? Certainly, you know, how many people are actually going to come back to downtown to work? And we we talked earlier, Senator, about just sort of the sales force making an announcement about you know, uh, keeping ha- more close to half of their employees home uh, permanently. And then Google, uh, you know, if you, I think of San Francisco, when I think about these, these business districts where many people are taking buses in from Mountain View to come to the office and they're giving business you know, to restaurants, but if they're going to stay home, I mean, I think that you, within that, um, that, that subject of, you know, who are the, the people that are going to get to stay at home and work permanently, um, and maybe it's a quality of life life issue for them, um, but I suspect there'll be a bloody intersection between the quality of life issue and work-life balance, but but those people that can uh, enjoy the, the luxury, I guess, of staying home, these are people that are, you know, probably in, in working for big tech, working for fintech, you know, they're probably, they were probably well off anyways, and then you have you know, workers in the service economy, restaurant owners and workers. You can't do that uh, from remote. Um, so, you know, and we see things like business travel, you know, companies, you know, even I make, making decisions in the future saying, we, Zoom is great. We don't need to travel down to LA, uh, you know, uh, tomorrow. We can do it via Zoom. But you have these business account customers yeah. um, that are going to substantially shrink and I think that's where you have cities like San Francisco, for example, where business accounts are, are going to take it in the chin. And so will 
restaurants and businesses in that city, but then versus Sacramento, where, you know, probably one of the more robust business account cities in the country, maybe next to Washington, D.C., because it's the center of power, right? Everybody needs to come in and, you know, lobby their government, you know? Um, and so I think, you know, the, that type of traveler in Sacramento is still going to be around. That business account spending will still be here. So restaurants in Sacramento may fare better, at least right out of this, than let's say San Francisco in an arts district. Mm -hmm. We are moving into our final 10 minutes. I want to make sure that we address any audience questions that are out there. So if anyone has uh, anything you'd like to ask based on the conversation, go ahead and submit it. We have received a few so far. I know uh, one of our audience members wanted uh, Micah maybe to elaborate a little bit on the earlier talk of the California exodus uh, in terms of the uh, perceived cost advantages of places such as Austin. Uh, you wanna take that one? Well, I mean, so three quick things. One, housing ain't cheap in Austin. So it ain't, it's not about that, right? <laughs> Two, taxes are, are an issue, right? But when I talk to business CEOs and I've talked to hundreds of them, they're much more worried about the regulations than they're worried about the taxes, right? Their challenge is they can't get things built. Their challenge is they can't, you know, uh, you know, uh, do the things they need to do to transition quickly enough in the economy. Um, so the, you know, not that like we should say, okay, fine, well, let's have infinite taxes, right? But it's, you know, I hear a lot more about concerns around regulations than I hear about concerns around taxes. But the final thing is, look, we're always going to be come at a premium price in California. I mean, you know. We're not going to compete with Alabama. We're not going to compete with Mexico. We're not going to be, we're not, that's not going to be our, our way that we are successful. But if we are going to come at a premium price, we need to deliver a premium product. And that's the challenge. The challenge is it's not the case anymore that we have a high quality, affordable public education system like we did at, as much as we did several uh, decades ago. We don't have the infrastructure that we had. Well, we still have the infrastructure that we had several decades ago. We don't have the new public transportation systems. We don't have these things. So mostly we need to make sure that we're really, that we're providing good value for the spending of these companies and good value for the 200 billion plus dollars that we are spending through the state budget every year. Senator Skinner, anything you'd like to add on that note? Well, the housing aspect would hugely help. The things that Micah mentioned are very important, but if we can get housing built faster, and I am, uh, I reintroduced my bill, um, well, it's the extension to SB 330. So my bill, that was the Housing Crisis Act, which basically said to, to local governments, look, you're, you already have tons of housing that meets your zoning rules. You just drag your feet in giving them a permit. So let's, for a certain period of time, just lift a lot of these uh, things, obstacles that are keeping things that already meet your rules from getting approved. And we put limits on the number of public hearings, limits on the amount of time to process, various things like that. And that was supposed to sunset because when I wrote it, I thought, okay, we'll give it five years. However, the pandemic kind of interfered. So it's like, it makes sense to extend it. And that's what I... I'm carrying this year. I hope it's successful because I think it makes a lot of sense because if you play by the rules, you should be able to get your permit fast. Um, unsurprisingly, we've also received a few comments about to-go cocktails. Uh, everyone is a big fan of Manhattans, but um, on a broader level, uh, someone did bring up a good point that uh, the to-go cocktails are a good example of creatively adapting to the constraints of the pandemic. The next question after that was how do we sort of encourage or foster that ingenuity in other industries where there isn't as clear of a solution. Um, Julie, do you mind touching on that? I know you said it's this is particularly difficult for the arts in, uh, specifically. 
Yeah, I mean, number one, I'd say hire creative workers. Uh, if you want inventiveness and ingenuity, and they're vastly unemployed right now, so they're available to any business to help you think through this. Um, and I think they should be at the table as much as possible. Um, I also there's a, a program that the governor actually introduced that we're really supportive, which is the California Creative Core Pilot Program, and that is actually to take artists and um, arts workers and people that are in trusted community organizations, arts organizations, and local communities to hire artists to actually deliver current public health messages in culturally specific fashions. Um, we see it actually, Sacramento um, has one called the Sacramento Artist Corps, came from CARES Act funding, wildly successful, brought to you by the Latino Center of Arts and Culture. They've done things like coloring books that go into food packets that talk about my abuela wearing a mask and eventually that it's gonna be transitioning to the concept of it's okay and it's safe to get a vaccine. This is how we can utilize artists and creative workers who are currently unemployed and don't have a roadmap to go back to work we can utilize them in other aspects of government, public health, mental health, trauma, other things like that. So how, that's where I see our sector, um, other ways that we can um, engage in, in being part of the solution to get us back to, to uh, recovery and rebuilding. I think we have time for one more question. A, re a listener brought up the point of uh, challenges pertaining to internet access um, and internet speeds, specifically as more people are working from home and helping children with uh, distance learning, that sort of thing. Micah, is there any sort of um, near-term solution for these sort of issues? Um, so this is part of the challenge, right? Um, which is that uh, you either have to deal with systems or you deal with symptoms, right? Um, and a lot of the inv investment, I mean, as frustrated as I am that the BART um, second tube isn't going to come into place until 2040 under the best of scenarios, it can't come into place tomorrow under any scenario, right? So the, you know, what I really hope that the California legislature does, and there's some really great leadership here, is getting checks to people right now is super important and not more important than broadband infrastructure, even if it takes a little while for that broadband infrastructure to get in place. So if we spend all of our broadband infrastructure money on immediate term checks, we will have failed people and failed equity. So we have to be very careful about balancing you know, these uh, different sort of short-term and long-term priorities as it relates to work, to the, work from home and the rest of these issues. Um, so on that, there are two members with uh, bills on broadband access, uh, Assembly Member um, Cecilia Aguiar-Curry and Senator Lena Gonzalez. And uh, you know, I'm maybe optimistic, but I believe that both, you know, somehow they'll get worked out and they'll go together and they'll get through. And the funding we are likely to vote on next Monday, that is checks to folks, doesn't eat up all of our one-time money. So we would still have some money to invest in the internet infrastructure, which I think it's clearly a priority of the governors. And I think partly, uh, you know, it doesn't have to be that we need that legislation first, but when, you know, a package that is some version of those bills with an injection of funding is what we need. And we'll, I predict we will have this year. Absolutely, one second of self-promotion. We were delighted when Senator Gonzalez uh, and uh, Assemblymember Aguiar Curry announced uh, at the California Economic Summit last year that they would be co-sponsoring each other's bills. Um, and so, yeah, no, we're really excited about that, but also, excited about uh, Assemblymember Jim Wood's bill about dig once and all the regulatory changes necessary to make sure that we're getting this internet access to people as soon as possible. We don't want to spend an infinite amount of money and get nothing for it. We need to make sure that we're actually getting that into the street um, so that we can order all those uh, to-go beverages online from uh, JOTS members. <laughs> Sounds good. Well, as we move into our uh, final minutes here, any uh, final comments from you, Julie? Um, you know, I think the future of work is absolutely going to include artists and creative workers, and I can't wait to get back to seeing us all together and um, experiencing live arts and entertainment. What about you, Jot? Well, um, go out to a restaurant, 
when you can. Uh, if there's if your neighborhood restaurant has outdoor dining, then um, it looks like the sun's out in Sacramento. So go sit go sit on the patio somewhere and help out your local restaurant owner. Great. Okay, let's go. I'll go and grab a Manhattan to go. Uh, sounds yeah. Sounds good plan. I, I'd add. I'd add. Order your restaurant meal to go now that unless you can get out to the outdoor one and your cocktail, and then go online. All of our live music venues are many of our theater companies, and the rest are streaming performances, which they don't even require you to pay for. They always have a little note on the bottom that allows you to contribute and so for example my husband and I every weekend at least twice we either go to one of those live music venues or one of the theater companies and we contribute and we and it's just wonderful and uh like everybody's used to streaming Netflix live music live theater is better <laughs> thanks everyone well thank you so much uh and Senator Skinner on that note uh you know and if you're a young person you don't even have to have a fake ID. You can just sneak, you don't have to sneak into the screen. This is a, would have been a major benefit to me when I was 19 years old and trying to get into bars. Uh, but with that, thank you so much, Sonia. Excellent job on the moderation. All our panelists, I thought it was great. John Howard down there, the editor of Capital Weekly, who put this whole uh, program together. And I invite all of our viewers to join us next Thursday, same bat time, same bat channel, uh, noon uh, next Thursday for a discussion about the impact of Prop 22. Thanks again. We'll see you all soon and uh, appreciate you tuning in. Thank you. Thank you. The Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive review. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week. The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by Tassin the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations.